Great to have you here with us. The question being asked, uh, you know, after 24 hours of just extraordinary terror, uh, did Sri Lankan officials ignore intelligence warnings that a local radical Muslim group would carry out terror? Did they ignore that? Uh, because the death toll is rising. We are at 290 victims killed and mainly, you know, women, children, everyday people, a lot of tourists. Hundreds of others have been um, injured. But this attack happened during one of the holiest days on the Christian calendar. As people prayed, they hit a number of hotels, but they definitely hit and targeted some of the more high-profile Christian churches. And 24 arrests have been made, but the questions are being, you know, what were you told by not just India intelligence, but the United States intelligence? Because they, being the government or governing officials in Sri Lanka, were warned as early as April 4th that suicide bombers from a small terror cell known as the National Toid Jamath were planning to attack prominent churches. And this, according to officials, is a brand new kind of terror. Let's bring in Matthew Fisher to this conversation. Longtime foreign and war correspondent. Right now, he is the resident visiting scholar for foreign military policy over at Massey College. Hello there. Hi, Alex. How are you? Well, you know, like a lot of people asking, how on earth did this happen? How did the officials in Sri Lanka not pick up or take the, the warnings more seriously? Well, I'm certainly not going to take their side, and I obviously don't know much more than what is publicly available, but I, I've been to Sri Lanka a lot, and uh, it has suffered terribly over the years because of uh, a civil war between two ethnic communities there, not so much based on religion as on ethnicity, the Tamils and the Sinhalese. And... Uh, that, that war petered out about 10 years ago, finally, and the Tamils were um, defeated. Uh, quite a few of them came and settled in Canada, in Toronto in particular. And uh, since then, there's been a relative calm there. The country's very dependent on tea exports and also uh, on uh, tourism. And so they want to keep a damper on any suggestions that there might be violence that scares people off. Uh, but also... Complacency uh, is why you ignore these threats. It's not just that it's happened in Sri Lanka and other places, too. People can't quite credit it. This, this Islamic cell, if that is indeed what it was, that conducted these coordinated attacks, nobody would have thought before, as they did with the 9-11 attacks, that uh, anybody could coordinate something in this fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, they had only previously defaced Buddhist uh, statues, things like that, and there's a Buddhist uh, majority. Uh, the Christians are quite uh, small in number in Sri Lanka. So, in fact, are the Muslims uh, and the Hindus. It's mostly Buddhist. But, uh, so it was hard to believe they could put together something this big. But clearly, I mean, the, the first moment I heard it, this smells like Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or organizations like this, which do have the capability, probably trained these people, mm -hmm. trained them in how to make bombs, uh, and uh, who was following, who was tracking the movements of some of these people. Uh, it looks like they're just rounding up anybody associated 
uh, with these attacks. But the actual people who perpetrated them, I think they've all died. So they'll be looking for the bomb makers and maybe going through the records to see who visited places like Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan where they might have got training. But complacency is at the root of all of these things. And it, it can happen in Canada. The police will hear that something's going to happen. They say, oh, those guys could never pull that off. Uh, and uh, they don't do too much about it. Uh, it's a tragedy, of course, that uh, when things are known. But even if it was known, where would you begin to right. find this cell? I don't really know. I don't know the, the lay of the land there well enough, Alan. Right. I mean, I've never heard of this group, National Tawhid uh, Jamath, if I'm even saying it right. Uh, but but would it uh, be possible that they had been recruited by a bigger terror organization, like you mentioned, Al-Qaeda, uh, Boko Haram? I don't know if they would be uh, linked with that, but they would... I mean, if you're going to get a new form of terrorism, you just almost like rent a, a gang or rent a, a group and, and send them out to do their, their dirty work. Well, I suspect it was the opposite direction. I suspect these people were inspired mm -hmm. by what they'd seen in Iraq and Syria and in Africa and many other places, and also inspired by attacks against the Christian minority. There was an Easter attack three years ago in Lahore, Pakistan, mm -hmm. which... 70 Christians were were murdered. And, and I think they probably went out and sought this training. Uh, Al-Qaeda gets an awful lot of its adherents uh, uh, by, I saw this in the Philippines uh, quite a bit, uh, by young people who go on the internet and their internet uh, uh, capability is quite potent. These organizations, they have very well-produced videos that appeal to young minds if they feel somehow aggrieved that they their community has not received maybe the support or the credit that they think it is due. So I'm I'm thinking some of them went out seeking this rather than the other way around. But I don't know. It could be, of course, that you that you are right. Uh, the fact is that. I just don't see from what little we know of them that uh, they could have pulled this off by themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, this many bombs that they all apparently, uh, two of them didn't go off, but seven of the nine bombs they had, I think that's the correct number, maybe it was eight of ten, went off. Well, that's pretty good in the bomb-making business for, for people who are basically amateurs and who obviously are very nervous when they carry out the, these attacks. And they were big bombs. Yeah. Obviously, they were very big bombs. Uh, and that takes a level of sophistication just simply in terms of transporting them. How do you get them close enough to cause damage? How do you work the intelligence to inveigle your way into a hotel? Uh, these hotels in Sri Lanka generally have security at the door. Uh, but did they have workers on the inside that they could go in through a cargo or freight entrance, for example? I, I'm sure these are all the angles that are looking at. I wouldn't blame this so much on the United States. Often it comes up, people want to beat up the United States, Alex, over why didn't the U.S. No, the U.S. cannot know everything that is going on in the world. And even if they knew something was going on in Sri Lanka, all they could do would be to pass on the information. They were not going to mount an attack themselves in Sri Lanka. The Sri Lankan government wouldn't countenance that. People in Sri Lanka don't want American troops running around there. 
So uh, I think we hear because we tend to want to blame the United States for the failings of intelligence. And certainly on 9-11, there's a heck of a lot of blame to go around. But I'm not so sure maybe about this one. Yeah, well, we'll see because uh, both U.S. and India intelligence are said to have, have sent the warning that it was ignored or what happened is still, I guess, up uh, for for investigation. What happens, though, in Sri Lanka now? Because as you mentioned off the top, this is a region that had uh, a lot of volatility with, I guess, ethnic fighting, but it had been relatively peaceful for the last uh, decade or so. Well, I think in the very, very short term, there will be a certain kind of unity between the two groups that had that very long single uh, civil war, since they do not appear to be in any way implicated in this attack. Whether that holds or not, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. That's been an open question for the past decade uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, how many Muslim militants are there in the country? Are there others? Are there other cells waiting to carry out attacks? Is there an order of battle? This group, if they could pull this off, do they actually have a second wave, a third wave, a fourth wave of attacks planned? Uh, I don't know, but certainly that's where the Indians and the Americans with far greater resources will be called upon in a big way right now to try to sort some of this out. Sure. I imagine some of the interrogations that are taking place right now, the 24 people who've been arrested so far, will not be very gentle. No, and certainly um, a trophy like carrying out such an attack on Easter, uh, certainly just, uh, it, you know, it revives and energizes those who, will, uh, you know, would love to continue to carrying out these attacks. Well, and there's a bigger story here too, Alex, and that is the attack on Christian minorities all yeah. over the place. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of this going on in Nigeria and several other countries in Africa. In the south of the Philippines, churches have mm-hmm. been attacked. Uh, they're a target. Uh, in Malaysia, mm-hmm. in Indonesia, the Christian minority has been up against it. Uh, and in Pakistan, where there are 2 million Christians, we think of it as an overwhelmingly Muslim country, and it is, but there are 2 million Christians, and there have been many, many attacks, and they don't only attack churches there. The the Christians tend to live in little communities uh, for self-preservation and protection, and they get attacked. I have very good friends who are Christians in Pakistan, and their little girls, I guess the girls now would be about 8 or 10 years old, they go to school in armored buses with uh, sort of uh, uh, fences on the windows, and the buses get stoned as these little girls go to school because they're infidels Mm -hmm. in the bus. And all of these attacks inspire attacks somewhere else. This somehow is going to appeal to some teenage kid in the Philippines or, uh, you know, the Coptic Christians The churches in Egypt in the last two or three years have been subject to many attacks. I was there during one of them about five years ago. And the government there, uh, not the West's favorite government at the moment, but they have tried to a certain extent to protect the Christian community. Uh, Lebanon is, of course, famous for its sectarian violence. Uh, It might inspire people there. And Africa is a real mess with uh, all kinds of countries, six or eight of them, with large Muslim minorities, or in some cases, large Christian minorities with Muslim majorities, and uh, things are not going well in a lot of these places. But Syria and Iraq seem finally, uh, uh, Islamic State is vanquished, does not in any way mean this war is over. We've seen it, of course, with attacks on churches in Europe 
and attacks on uh, the general population there in the last couple of years, Belgium, France, Germany. Uh, this is a global phenomenon. And in fact, in Canada, we have been kind of lucky and we tend to take credit like we've somehow the magic uh, potion that we can avoid this. I don't think we can avoid it. One day, as has happened in Australia, we're going to wake up with something pretty darn terrible on our hands that will be the result of of uh, extreme sectarian violence. I, I don't see how we avoid it, too. Yeah. Uh, we delude ourselves if we think so. Yeah, I uh, tend to agree, unfortunately, with that. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're most welcome, Alex. That is Matthew Fisher, who knows these regions probably better than just about anybody. And, you know, unfortunately, he's right. It's going to continue. And yet, who's silent today? Not a word from the United Nations. Not one word. Nothing. We're on Point on Global News Radio.